What is up? Welcome back to Deeper with the Dolan Twins. Today we are having a conversation with Molly Burke. Okay, we're rolling on our end, so whenever you guys are ready. Okay, awesome. We're rolling. Molly, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to catch up. I know. It's been so long. Last time I saw you, I was falling out of the sky with a blindfold on. So I didn't, I didn't exactly see you. Exactly. Yeah. That was a, that's still to this day, one of the craziest things I think I've ever done in my that life. That was so fun. I think about it often. Yeah, it was fun. No, the entire experience was so fun and I feel like such a badass to say that I got to do it. So thank you for pushing me out of my, out of my comfort zone. No, it's one of my favorite videos I've, I've ever filmed for sure. Awesome. I, I, if someone asks me like what, you know, what video should I watch that you've done? I'll like tell them that video. It's not even ours. But it's not, yeah, it's not even <laughs> ours. I'll just say I was in this one. I do stuff like this maybe. I don't know. But this was like a cool version of the stuff that I used, that I did on YouTube. Uh, but that was like, that was so scary for me because we, we like started the whole pro, we, we put the blindfolds on when we were on the ground and the level of trust that I needed to, to have in the, in the guy that was strapped to my back was intense because I, could, I couldn't see the, the straps and everything like that. I couldn't check them. And yeah, while well, I was falling. Well, that's the biggest thing when you're blind is like trust. Like you just kind of, a, you're forced to trust people, which I think in, in one way is a blessing because it means you just build like really deep bonds with people and you just have like this this optimistic outlook on, on, on humanity. Yeah. But at the other way, it's also can be scary sometimes because it puts you in a vulnerable, vulnerable position to have to like trust complete strangers. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one of the things that you told me originally that I, I had never really thought about until I really put that blindfold on. I'm like, wow, my life is in the hands of this guy strapped to my back right now. And if he f messes up, I'm not going to be able to call him out on it. I, I, I won't know. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was that was really crazy. And then you said even like Uber rides and everything and just things that I never really thought about. Like yeah, Ubers and Lyfts. Like if I don't have my guide dog with me, like if I'm just alone, I'll hide my cane because I don't want the driver to know that I'm disabled, that I'm a disabled woman because it just puts me in a position of feeling like really vulnerable. And I mean, if you just look at the statistics, you know, disabled women are, are really at risk for abuse and assault. Um, so I just try to be as careful as I can. And that's one of the reasons I love having a guide dog because when I get in a, the back of, a, of an Uber or if I'm with a stranger alone, but I have this like 95 pound dog with me, people aren't gonna mess with us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you gotta imagine. And so that's, that's so interesting that you say, because that's also something that slips a lot of people like me and, and enabled people's minds is like something as simple as an Uber ride can, can cause so much anxiety for, for a person like you without, without your guide dog. Pretty much every little thing is impacted in one way or another. Mm. At the end of the day, like I'm used to living the way I do as a blind woman. I'm used to adapting and changing how I do things, but certainly the vast majority of things that I do every single day are in one way or another impacted by the fact that I can't see it. And from our conversation that we had when uh, we hung out together, um, you let us know that you weren't always blind also or, or fully. Yeah. Um, so talking just about adapting, that's an extreme adjustment that um, I feel like most of humanity would be very terrified by. And it's something Yeah, that, that it, it was... Um, 
It was really hard. I, I was born legally blind and I was diagnosed at four with retinitis pigmentosa, which slowly degenerates your vision. So you slowly lose your vision over time. Mm. And I ended up losing the majority of it when I was just 14. And I think we can all look back at being 14 in like eighth grade and think about like what a tough time that was because you're going through puberty, your hormones are racing through you, you're leaving middle school, entering high school, you're kind of coming into your own, you're maybe starting to date or figure out your own sense of style and music. And all of these things in your life are, are changing. Um, and so then to add going blind on top of that, it was a lot to deal with. And it was a lot at, at such a young age because other 13 and 14 year olds that I was going to school with couldn't even begin to comprehend what I was going through. So it made it very hard to have any empathy. Mm -hmm. um, so I oh, ended yeah. up just being, instead of having support from my friend group and empathy for what I was going through, I, I had a lot of bullying and a lot of people like misunderstanding or judging me. Yeah, and so when you speak about empathy, are, are you saying there was a lack of empathy from others towards yourself or from you towards others? Because I could imagine that you just, you know, going blind that year and then hearing other people complain about little stupid things like, oh, this person, you know, passed a, a note that said something bad about, you know, there's like that, that, that middle school talk and middle school drama. But to you, that's, it was probably irrelevant at that time. Yeah, because, you know, you yeah. just had gone to losing your vision. Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's, to be honest, like it, it went both ways. I, I felt like the people around me in my class and at my school, like they didn't understand me and didn't have empathy towards me. And I struggled to really understand them as well. Like I felt a lot of anger towards them. I felt a lot of resentment towards able-bodied people for not understanding me. Um, but that same anger and resentment that I felt towards people not understanding me and not having empathy towards me is the same kind of driving force to make me want to start my YouTube channel, to make me want to speak out and share my story publicly as like vulnerable and hard as that is sometimes because I eventually on, on my journey to recovery realized that I can't really be angry at society for being ignorant when there's such a, a lack of access to learn about disability. You know, and as young kids, we're often taught like, oh, don't look, don't point, don't look at somebody who's different, don't ask questions, don't point at them. But how are we supposed to help educate kids and help them understand if we don't encourage them to ask questions, you know, all the time I hear when I'm walking with my guide dog or a cane, a little kid go, mommy, why does that girl have a stick? Or why does she get to bring her dog to the store? And it always makes me sad when parents go, shh. I'm like, no, no, don't, don't hush your kid. And I'll always try to go out of my way to, to get down on the kid's level and kneel down with them and say, hey, I, I wanna tell you all about my dog or all about my cane. And this is why I have it. And this is how it helps. And this is why I use it. Because kids need to know because kids become adults. And disabled people face so much discrimination because adults are scared of us because they were never taught that we're just like you, um, that we're just normal people who do things a little bit different, whose bodies don't function quite the same way. Um, and so it's that, that exact like resentment and anger and lack of empathy that I had towards people that, that drove me to want to build that bridge. Wow, that's, that's really big of you to be able to put that, that um, the discrimination that you were facing aside and... and you know, not, not blaming people for feeling that way or acting that way. Um, mm -hmm. I could imagine that that probably takes some time for a 14 year old. Oh yeah. 
You know what I mean? So what was definitely. it like growing into that and, and growing into the understanding? Yeah, you definitely don't wake up overnight like a little wise Buddha, you know? It <laughs> takes time to to heal, to recover. And at the end of the day, like recovery is a journey. There's ups and downs. Um, so there's a lot of things that kind of contributed to my overall healing and rebuilding my life. Um, and it was everything from finding spirituality. Um, so for me, that wasn't necessarily the religion I was born into. It was kind of finding my own form of belief system um, that felt right for me. Um, it was reading self-help books like You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. Um, it was going to a psychologist, having talk therapy. It was doing cognitive behavior therapy and working through the Mind Over Mood workbook. Um, it was you know, getting fit, like being physically healthy, right? Because mm -hmm. when you when you deal with depression, oftentimes everything goes. Yeah. You know, it's not just your mental state that goes. Um, your physical, you, you often let go of your physical health as well. And so it was rebuilding that for me, um, which meant seeing a nutritionist, eating foods that fueled my body, learning to drink enough water, getting into yoga and fitness, um, finding a healthy, positive outlet for my emotions, like writing music and singing. So there's so many things that rebuild you. It's, there's no fix-it-all solution. There's no one pill that cures everything. You know, things like medication can help, but you also need to be proactive and do your end of the work as well. Um, and so... For me, it was a multi-level journey and it still is, you know, I still have down times. There's still times when I struggle, like a lot of people over this last year, my mental health took a dip mm -hmm. and it was just readdressing, okay, like what, what um, coping mechanisms and what strategies do I need to put in place to be my best self and be healthy mind, body, spirit? Yeah, I, I can imagine um, just how, how this last year would affect you. Um, and, you know, I, I looked up some, uh, some of your recent videos where you're speaking about your dog is now being forced into retirement um, because of this, yeah. this pandemic and, and how much it caught both of you guys off guard. Yeah, I think everybody's been affected by the pandemic in different ways. And it's really easy to look at other people. Um, you know, I, I felt a lot of guilt and I'm sure you guys have felt this at times, too. Potentially, you know, I felt guilt that like I still get to work you know, and, mm -hmm. and other people, like I get to work in, in the safety of my home, yeah. whereas other people are out working on the front lines, putting themselves at risk every day, working at grocery stores, um, you know, or doctors on the front lines, um, or people forced to, to, you know, not have employment at all. And so I felt guilty at times that like, oh, maybe I'm, I'm not as negatively affected by this as other people, so I don't deserve to hurt. But at the end of the day, I've come to realize like we're all facing this, we're all facing different battles throughout this. And for me, one of those battles was losing the ability to work my guide dog and being forced to retire him early. Mm -hmm. That's something that heading into this pandemic, nobody would have thought of, nobody mm -hmm. would have even considered. But because my guide dog wasn't able to work, you know, I've been really respectful of the, of the guidelines and I have stayed home. And because I'm staying home, my guide dog's never working and they need to work to maintain their skill level. And so month one, two, three, fine. But we're over a year into this now. Mm -hmm. So at this point, he's lost his, his skills and he's too old to retrain him. Like he's within the window of retirement. So 
we're choosing to retire him and and even other things like it's it's challenging because even when you do say go to the grocery store to get your food for the week there's stickers on the ground that tell you yeah. where to stand to stay safely away from people i can't see those stickers my guide dog wasn't trained to see those stickers yeah. the cane doesn't feel those like flat stickers on the ground um it's hard enough for me to communicate with people in general when i can't see body language and facial expression but now add a muffling of a mask and of plexiglass and it's very hard for me to hear you and i can't see when you point so there's all of these little things um or needing to touch everything right like i touch everything around me my hands are my eyes so whether it's needing to get sighted guide from somebody and physically touch their arm or whether it's needing to always touch the banister when i'm walking up and down stairs always feeling around to find buttons um and so all of those things as a blind person you know put me at higher risk throughout this last year so what were some ways that you were forced to adapt to this new lifestyle in, in the pandemic? Um, you spoke about well, sighted, I, sighted guide and then you're, I mean, you're, obviously your dog hasn't been, been trained to know how to react to everything shutting down. And dogs are creatures of habit. We just, we just got a puppy and if, uh, I know she has far less training than Gallup, you're, you're, you're seeing eye dog, <laughs> but uh, if she doesn't wake up at 8 a.m., and I'm not ready to open the door to let her out to go to the bathroom, then that's an issue. So uh, I, I can imagine, you know, your dog is so used to working every single day and when something, you know, throws him off, uh, you know. Yeah, he, he and especially like for me, pre-pandemic, I was traveling constantly. So he wasn't even just used to like a normal work schedule. He was used to like a really over the top. We were working seven days a week. I was constantly flying between all over North America, Europe, Asia. Um, so he was on and off planes in different hotel rooms, constantly at events, speaking engagements. Um, so it, it really was like drastic for us. The change from constantly, constantly being on the move and almost frankly, never being at home to realistically, like never leaving my home. Um, so it was a really big change for him. And the only times he was getting out was for just like a walk around the block because dogs need to walk and be, be able to pee, you know? Um, and that's not enough. Like his skill set as a guide dog is to guide me in busy areas, through airports, through train stations, at shopping malls, at event spaces, offices. And when he's not getting that, that practice, it's like any skill, if, if you, if you ta were, were taught French in school, but then you don't speak French for five years, when you go to France, you're gonna be pretty rusty. You're gonna be like, oh shoot, like I thought I knew French, but now I'm feeling like, I, like it's hard to remember. And that's like for him, he's just a dog, right? Like at the end of the day, these dogs are highly trained, but they're just a dog. And that's what's important to remember. Um, and so, yeah, that's been huge. So having to kind of adapt back to using my cane. And of course, just for me personally, and I'm sure you guys kind of face this as well, there's, there's certain YouTubers who their content has always been filmed at home, right? Like they never really did content out and about. They filmed most of the videos from their bedroom or from their living room. But I would say like a good 80% of my content was filmed out and about in the world, like out doing things, showing people how I live life as a blind person and how I do things and sharing my life with them. And so when my life became my four walls, it definitely was like creatively a strain to kind of come up with ways to help people still feel like they can escape. And I can be a fun distraction for them twice a week 
when I'm under such constraint creatively to come up with like fun videos twice a week from my bedroom. Yeah. Mm. And it's almost like as a viewer, I feel like it's kind of like upsetting watching the person that you look up to or look to for an escape, like just being stuck in their house. I think there's like on both ends of being a viewer and, and a creator, it's just not as, it doesn't have that spark like it once did. Ethan and I can relate to what you're saying. We, we took a step back from YouTube um, and it was partially because of the pandemic, partially because I think our, our passions are just, you know, growing as we grow. Um, things are changing in our lives and, and therefore our interests are changing. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I really agree. do believe that the pandemic was the catalyst. Yeah, you kind of just burn out a little bit crea mm -hmm. creatively. But um, congrats to you on, on keeping it going. I, I've seen really great content being created yeah, by we, you. I just uh, I, I watched a few of your TikToks where the one that interested me a lot was uh, where you talked about the curb uh, cuts and yes, I think it was a recent one and, uh, and texting as well. Um, how, how those were both created for disabled people, but they, they benefit everybody. Exactly, exactly. It's universal design, right? So when we think about like designing something to be accessible to disabled people, you're kind of designing for like a very small minority group. Um, if you're trying to design for a deaf person or for a blind person or for a wheelchair user, or an amputee, you it can feel like you're designing for this really small group of people and that's maybe a lot of money to spend for like to benefit this small group of people. Mm -hmm. But the reality is what we've seen over time is what we thought of as an accessible design feature actually ends up being way more widely used by way more people and a lot of whom are would by, would identify as able-bodied so the cut in the curb right that slant in the sidewalk where where you go to cross was designed for people in wheelchairs or who use walkers but now all of us who ride our bikes or pull a suitcase or are on a skateboard or pushing a baby stroller are really happy that curb cut is there so we don't have to like pick it up and take it down the curb. And so what was an accessible design actually became a universal design, universally accessed and enjoyed by everybody. And text messaging was designed as an alternative to phone calls for the deaf community. But now I think the majority of us would probably say like we text more than we have phone calls. Definitely. And so it, it just has been true in history that when we design for accessibility, we actually design for everybody and everybody benefits, which is why it's just really good to push yourself to think creatively to think outside the box of how could I help everybody? How can I build this app or this product or this environment to be used and accessed by everybody who exists in this world? And that includes disabled people. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I didn't know either of those. And I know there's probably a million answers to this question, but are there some things off the top of your head that you can think of um, that need to be made more accessible for disabled people? <sighs> Like Definitely what are the, what are the, a the top list. ones. Yeah. Um, I'd say the the biggest frustration for, for me and I think a lot of other blind people is how common touch screens are becoming, but they're not accessible. It is possible to make touch screens accessible. For example, I can use a, a smartphone. Pretty much all smartphones are touchscreen and pretty much all of them are accessible to me from whether it's an you know, whether it's a Google phone, whether it's a Samsung phone, whether it's an Apple phone, I can use all of those. They're touchscreen. But if I go to use a touchscreen microwave, not accessible. If I go to use a touchscreen um, with my credit card, not accessible. And so that's really frustrating because the way I look at it and the way I try to help people understand it is that technology either has the ability 
to widen the gap or to close the gap. And so when you choose to make your technology accessible to the blind or deaf community, you're choosing to help close the gap in society between us. You're empowering us to be more independent, to be more capable and to access more information and more opportunity. But when you don't design with accessibility in mind and you just choose to ignore an entire group of people, you widen that gap because all of a sudden now I can't do something and I need to ask somebody for help. Um, so I can't be independent. And so it really is so important to think about closing the gap instead of widening it. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about your, your phone being a touchscreen that's accessible for you, what um, parts of uh, the technology make it accessible? So there's different um, screen readers that are made by different companies. So for example, Android is called TalkBack, um, Samsung is Voice Assistant, uh, Apple is VoiceOver. And so basically it's just in the settings, preloaded on the phone. You can go find accessibility features. You turn it on. You can even ask like if you have an iPhone, you can ask Siri, turn voiceover on. And um, all of a sudden everything that's under my fingertip gets read aloud. So I'm not missing any information and I can use every app except apps that don't design with accessibility in mind. So if an individual app creator has decided to not think about screen reader users, um, then it's usually not accessible, but all kind of Apple, Samsung, all of their built-in apps are fully accessible. Yeah, and that, and that sounds like something that could definitely be Im implemented into the, the touchscreens in the grocery store, the airport, and you know, et cetera, I think that can be done. Yeah. And it's crazy that you mentioned that because it's things that, that you don't hear that often um, and that definitely need to be brought to attention much more. Mm -hmm. like I feel like there's a huge lack of, of attention on, on making, you know, when creating products to make them accessible for disabled people, yeah. 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 And, and really shortening And I gap. think what's important to realize is that the disability community is the only minority group that anybody can join at any time, right? Mm -hmm. Like most people with disabilities aren't born disabled. Most people with disabilities either acquire their disability through an accident, which nobody plans to get in an accident, yeah. or through illness, uh, or through old age, the aging process. And so, you don't know when you might be affected by the world not being accessible. And so it just makes sense to put effort into thinking about everybody and thinking about actually being inclusive. And I think you see a lot of conferences or panels where they talk about like diversity. And you'll see pretty much every minority group represented in one way or another. And disability is always left out. It's never there. And that's why people don't hear about it. That's why people don't hear anybody really talking that loudly about the need for accessible product and design is because we're so often left off the conversation. We're left off the table. Um, and, and that's why I make content. That's why I want to try to like get a microphone and yell as loud as I can to help people understand. And it's awesome to see how many more disabled content creators are out there sharing their stories and raising their voice and raising awareness, breaking stereotypes and misconceptions. Um, but we still, as a community, we still have a long way to go before we really have, you know, equal rights and equal opportunities. So, we, we also spoke because you are so independent as a, as a blind woman. A lot of people 
um, have created conspiracies about how you can actually see. Yes. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yes. Which, which is ridiculous. Um, for someone that you've never met before to just tell you, uh, that you can see when you've done so much in your life to adapt to this new lifestyle and overcome so many hurdles. Um, I could just imagine how, how shitty that must feel. Yeah, it's very invalidating of all the very real pain and discrimination that I've had to face and go through and still do on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, it's invalidating to all the work that I've put in to be independent, to be capable, uh, to be successful. And you see it even like there's, I mean, there's Reddit threads devoted to how I'm faking it, but there's also plenty of Reddit threads devoted to how pretty much anybody with a chronic illness or disability uh, on, this, on social media is somehow faking it. There's like a whole thread on Reddit called um, illness fakers. And they just, any, any content creator, they try to go and like find clues and debunk their disability. And, you know, there was just a case where um, Amy Lee Fisher uh, a chronically ill YouTube creator in England passed away at 23 due to her chronic illness. And there was threads devoted to how she was faking it up until she passed away. And it's really incredible that these people have such passion to go out of their way and invest such time, energy, and effort into debunking people who are bravely getting out there and sharing their stories to help create change. Um, and I would just like to say the amount of people who fake illness or disability are the vast minority. Yeah, yeah. The majority of people who claim to have cancer, the majority of people who claim to be in a wheelchair, the majority of people who claim to have some form of illness or disability actually have it. There are not that many people who fake it, but unfortunately, the people who do fake cancer and scam a bunch of people for money, the people who do fake, like there was a Twitch user who was uh, pretended to be in a wheelchair and then was caught when he thought he ended the stream, but he stood up out of his wheelchair and started to walk off screen, even though um, he hadn't ended his Twitch stream. So he was caught faking. Those people get a lot of media attention way more media attention than those of us who are actually authentically out here sharing our story. And so then it puts doubt in, in all the rest of us. Um, but I promise you the majority of us, we're just out here trying to share our story and raise awareness. And um, if we don't fit the mold that you expect somebody who's chronically ill or disabled should fit, um, that's exactly why we're making content. Because the mold that's been shown in media isn't the only way we present. The, the way we've been presented in mainstream media isn't accurate, and that's why we're here. Mm -hmm. So, and that's why, yeah, I believe it's so important that we need to teach the youth about this instead of hiding them from it. That's something that, that you've mentioned in this conversation that stood out to me so much is, is that it isn't taught to us from a young age. And it's also, it's so, it's so um, stigmatized that when you're a young person, you don't know how to speak about it, so you're afraid to. Exactly, what, what and are, that's why it's like, if, if we're taught about it at a young age, 
it's destigmatized, right? It just mm -hmm. becomes normal. Yeah. And I, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, I certainly, there was no books in kindergarten about disability. Like there's plenty of picture books about families and diversity, but none of them ever included disabled characters. There wasn't TV shows that showed disabled people, um, cartoons for kids. There needs to be, and there is more and more nowadays, but still nowhere near enough. Um, and when we teach kids about these things from a young age and we normalize it for them, I've got to believe that it will stop a lot of the bullying disabled people face and a lot of this discrimination disabled people face because it won't be weird. It won't be strange. We won't be these different scary creatures. We'll be just like you. Certainly. Yeah. And I, I came to a realization in my personal life lately um, and that was that I've pretty much been raised by media. The media that I consume has taught me almost everything I know. Um, I left high school at a pretty early age, 14, to come out to L.A. and pursue my passion. Um, and from then, I just learned from my peers and I learned from media. Um, and especially in this past year, I feel like I've, I've learned almost the most that I have because I've been just inside and had so much free time to do all the research that I've wanted to do. Um, and I've realized how important representation is in just mainstream media. Mm -hmm. um, and having positive role models, yeah. you know, I always encourage uh, parents to watch the YouTubers and TikTokers and creators that their kids are watching because your kids are learning from those people and, you know, they have the power to positively influence kids or negatively influence them. Um, so I think it's really important that parents actually take an active role in social media and an understanding like what's out there. Um, and they can hopefully help encourage their kids to watch things that that positively educate them and open their minds um, because the social media really is a really wonderful place to access things and information that you can't access other places. But it's also a great place to watch like mind numbing content that actually is like very negative. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. definitely. That's what that's what's sketchy. Like like a place like TikTok is. It's so weird because one moment I'll see something so fascinating like the TikTok of you explaining the, the cut curb and, and texting theory and, and it was just oh, so mind-opening and it made me think on all these different levels and I was like so happy that I saw it and I learned so much in that short period of time but then the next swipe on TikTok can be something that like damages my mood for yeah, the rest like of the day. Like an animal getting abused or something terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah so exactly. I mean, even just like going into getting my vaccine, like I wasn't seeking out negative content around vaccines, but you best believe it kept popping up. And I was like, no, I'm getting it. Don't show me this. Yeah, I'm yeah. doing something good. And there's a bunch of yeah. people just saying. So that's, that's really fascinating that you said social media um, is doing a much better job than media in the past with representing the disabled community because of people like yourself who are brave enough to uh, share their story and, and essentially devote their lives to, you know, helping people who are in your position. Was there any type source of media or, or someone that was like a public figure who was a role model for you when you realized that you were going to lose your sight? Yeah, you know, growing up, there, there really wasn't um, disabled people depicted in media. And if there was, these characters were being played by able-bodied people. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like an able-bodied person just can't really give a fully accurate portrayal of, of what it's like to be a disabled person and, and the real day-to-day -day experience. Just like you, you would say that is true for a lot of minority communities, right? Like as white people, we can't begin to understand what the day-to-day -day life of a black person is. You know, we can educate ourselves, we can try our best 
Uh, we can have empathy, but we, we don't live that experience. So we can't have that authentic, uh, you know, that authentic betrayal. And that's why mm-hmm. black people play black characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Asian people play Asian characters. And so it really is important to me that like trans people be the ones playing trans characters mm-hmm. so they can bring that authenticity that disabled people get to portray disabled characters so they can bring that authenticity. Um, and so even when it was there, it, it wasn't really, it didn't really feel um, right for me. And, and, and the other blind people that, that are actually blind and in the media were people like Stevie Wonder. But for me as like a young blind female who like loves makeup and fashion, I didn't really see myself in Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the, the closest thing to kind of a, a real inspiration in media was Demi Lovato because she was somebody who always openly talked about her mental illness, about bullying, um, about struggle, you know, like she really openly talked about some really challenging things at a time when, when other celebrities weren't really doing that. And that really felt empowering to me. I was like, okay, if, if Demi Lovato can open her wounds publicly to help create change, then, then I can find the strength to do the same on, on a much smaller scale. When you, you mentioned people playing characters that are authentic to who they are as, as humans, um, I, it's, I got into a conversation with um, someone about this recently, and they were kind of pro if someone has the ability to, to act, know, and, to act and, and they're you know, better than, say, this trans person who's auditioning for this trans role at acting, then shouldn't they get the role? Um, and you know, I, I, I strongly disagreed because not only um, you know, would the, the trans person who's auditioning for the trans role um, represent and portray a a trans character in a a film or TV show or whatever it may be, but they're also a human being beyond that. So someone who is trans, uh, is part of the trans community can, you know, watch that content and then not only be empowered by the character, but do more research and find out who plays that character. And then maybe that's a role model for them. Exactly, exactly. It goes beyond just that one movie, you know, it's what that person is doing and who they are representing and who they are inspiring and empowering and connecting with. Um, And those people deserve a platform. And also, uh, you know, I, I grew up acting, right? I took 10 years of stage performance and improv. I did a little bit of television acting studies, but mostly my focus was improv and stage performance. And so I, you know, I understand that like there's people who are better at acting than others. The problem is not like, oh, well, I was better for the role, so I got it. It's that disabled actors um, and a lot of other minority communities, like we're not even really given the opportunity to go to the audition. Like we're rarely given the opportunity to even be in the room. And I myself have faced discrimination within the mainstream media industry, the acting community. Like I've um, been down to top two for blind female characters three or four times now, top two, meaning I had enough talent. Mm -hmm. I went through two to three rounds of auditions and was in the final room with all the execs, the producers, the directors, the writers, and it's up against me and one other girl. And guess what? Every time I lost that role to a sighted woman. Every time for a blind character. So no, I don't think it's about talent at that point because we're down to top two at this point. Yeah. I had the talent to get there. At this point, it's about something more than that. 
And my old assistant um, was an aspiring actor. As I think, you know, when you have an assistant in LA, they're often have their side hustle of, of acting. And yeah. so I would always, you know, whenever she wanted to go on an audition, she'd go off and she was on set one day and she came to me afterwards and she's like, you know, we were all sitting on set in one of our filming breaks and we were chatting about what we do outside of, of acting. And I was telling them that I'm your assistant and they all started saying to me like, well, how could she be safe on a set? Like she would be a liability. She could walk into things. How would she walk on and hit her mark and know where to look at the camera? How would she? And she was like, I couldn't believe like these people were making such discriminatory marks, remarks with having never even met you or seen what you're capable of, just yeah. hearing one fact about you that you have a disability. And, and that's the sad truth is that at a certain point, it doesn't matter how talented I am or how talented anybody is, when there's a reason to discriminate, even when it's subconscious, sometimes people just do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people just do. And, and that's what's hard. And for an able-bodied, cisgendered actor, there are so many roles so many. that so you can many, play. Yeah. There are so many roles for you. But as a trans character or as a disabled character, there's very few roles for those minority communities in particular, right? And so when we have way less opportunity, because we're not even at the point yet where anybody would consider letting a, a person in a wheelchair or a deaf person or a blind person play an able-bodied character. So what I say to somebody saying like, oh, well, if I'm more talented, it doesn't matter that I'm not trans playing a trans character, that I'm not disabled playing a disabled character. Okay, fine. That's fine when able, when disabled people are allowed to play able-bodied characters. That's fine when trans actors are being allowed to play cisgendered characters. When we're actually getting equal opportunity, you can get equal opportunity and you can come for our roles. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So what you spoke about are the other actors on your, assist, your old assistant set. Um, and you know they just kind of discriminated without even thinking or wh what do you think that stems from is it just you know the lack of education as a, as a young person uh, in, yeah it's the lack of education this, yeah. and 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 how we've been represented right like if you think about a lot of blind characters in movies um, the very few that there have been in movies or tv shows they're often wearing dark sunglasses they're often quite reliant on other people. They're feeling people's faces. I don't know, we've hung out a few times. Have I ever like gone out of my way to feel your face when it no. wasn't like as a joke for the video? Just as a joke <laughs> for the video, that was it. <laughs> but no. like, it's not like when we hung out and met pre-filming, like it wasn't like I was like, oh. hey, nice to meet you guys, like feeling up your face. But so why the heck are we being portrayed that way always? You know why? And that, so all of these negative harmful stereotypes lead into affecting real people's lives. Yeah, I, f I felt so bad that when we hung out, just it, it brought up a memory that Gallup couldn't come along because Grayson had severe allergies. But since then, he's gone on six months of uh, anti-dog allergy shots. So <gasps> hopefully next time we get to no. see each other, you can, you can bring your, um, your guide dog with you. And Have they worked? They, they've worked, so we've actually been able to get a dog. And that's so exciting. She's our, very hypoallergenic, but our dog, like Gallup, is part Bernie's Mountain Dog. <gasps> no way! Yes. Bernie's Mountain Dogs are the best. They're oh, so great. What? I love her so much. She's literally like the the love of my life. 
Is it a Bernadoodle? Bernadoodle, yes. Oh my god, I love Bernadoodles. They're so cute. Does she have like any of the rest, like the eyebrows or anything? Yeah, she, she has, has the, the eyebrows. eyebrows. She has like Bernie's colors, but just is very curly. Yeah, and oh, uh, so cute. I cannot wait to meet her. Oh my god. I know. <laughs> I love that. They're the best. Bernie's Mountain Dogs, honestly, like. The personality of a Bernese Mountain Dog is just so sweet. Like they're just such wonderful dogs. Yeah, she's she's very she's very sweet. She has no chill yet because she's just a puppy. Yeah, <laughs> but she's so sweet. How does uh how does your dog do around other dogs? And I'm sure that they've been trained to. Yeah, can you explain that? Because our our dog's not good around other dogs. I know she didn't go through any training process other than me uh, telling her no when she pees on the floor. But yeah, she's not good around other dogs yet. Yeah, Gallop, so they, they train them that when their harness is on to ignore other dogs. So it's really funny because he'll be like, I'll be walking down the street with him and another person walking their dog, their dog will start jumping and barking and Gallop literally like won't even look, won't mm-hmm. even look. And it's so funny. I feel really bad when like somebody's dog is really misbehaving and Gallop doesn't even look at the dog. <laughs> I'm like, oof, that's embarrassing for you. My dog was just like, I don't even know you're there. Like he just like straight faces it. But when he's off harness, you know, he's allowed to play with other dogs. I think because of like the fact that he kind of ignores dogs when his harness is on, he often will kind of like not even really care about other dogs. But the odd time he'll meet a dog that he's like super into and he's doing all tail wags and the butt sniffing and yeah, but only off harness. Wow, that's so crazy how he's able to distinguish. I mean, obviously he's able to distinguish between wearing his harness and not. Um, and knowing what the rules are when he has his harness on versus when he doesn't have them on. What, do you know what the training process is like for these dogs and how long it takes? Yeah, so it's different for each guide dog school. There's a lot of different guide dog schools. I believe in the U.S. there's something like 12 different guide dog schools. Um, and so each school has a different kind of period, time period that they train for. Uh, the school that I go to is called the Mira Foundation, and um, I'm actually doing a fundraiser for them right now. Um, each dog cost $40,000, one wow. dog, $40,000. Wow. Um, so I decided, you know, like all, and they're charities, right? They get no government funding. It's all charitable donations. So like a lot of charities over this last year with the pandemic, they've been hard hit. And so I decided to try, especially because I'm about to go get my third $40,000 dog from them. You know, I really wanted to try to do my part um, and kind of mobilize the community that I have to fundraise. So we're at about $30,000 of the $40,000 goal. So I'm really excited. And I mean, basically that means that I get to cover the cost of my own dog, which is great because it, it leaves the rest of the money there to help train other dogs for other blind people that need them too. So really excited about that. But the Mira Foundation in particular trains their dogs for about two years. So my first guide dog, when she graduated, she was two and a half and Gallup graduated a little after his second birthday. And um, they go for about 12 to 16 months of puppy training, which is where anybody, you, me, the next door neighbor could adopt one of the puppies and do the puppy training. So this means bringing it to work or if you're a student, bringing it to school, um, bringing it to the grocery store and just getting it used to being in public environments, meeting people, learning to sit, stay, don't poop inside, the normal puppy stuff. And then after 12 to 16 months of that, it goes back to the guide dog school facility where it gets its formal training. 
And before it goes into formal training, they do a testing process. And depending on how many tests the dog passes, it gets slotted into which program it'll be trained for. So a lot of schools train for multiple different disabilities. For example, the Mira Foundation trains for wheelchair users, autism support dogs, and blindness. And so the least amount of training required is autism. So when they don't pass very many tests, they get slotted to the autism program just because it requires less training. Uh, the second is uh, wheelchair. And then to, you have to pass the most amount of tests to be slotted as a guide dog because it's the hardest program to train for, requires the most training. Um, and so once they've been slotted into their program, they begin training and they do six to eight months of in harness training. So this is when they learn to put their harness on and that, you know, there's a difference between harness on and harness off. Harness off is playtime, harness on is work time. So what they do to get the dog used to going into the harness is they make a game out of it. They play games to get the dogs excited about the harness. Um, and then they kind of teach them that you know, the moment the harness comes out, I, I get a treat. The moment the harness comes off, I get toys. And so they learn like, okay, harness not on, toys. Harness on, no toys. So they kind of start to create that divide in their mind. Um, but they do lots of different interesting things. Like they have a kennel cat. So there's a cat that lives in the kennels with them so that the dog doesn't develop any kind of, you know, attraction to cats as dogs can tend to have. Um, they do things like what they'll play the sound of fireworks or the sound of thunderstorms, which can be things that are particularly fearful or triggering for dogs, um, while they eat so that the dog hears thunder and associates it with food. It's a positive thing. Um, and then they slowly wean them off food to a toy. And then they wean them off that to just being able to hear a thunderstorm or fireworks and like not do anything. They just sit there. And so it's really interesting. There's so many different techniques and things that they do to have to get them used to kind of everything that they, they'll come up against as a working dog. And a lot of dogs don't get any, don't pass any, you know, like a lot of these dogs fail out of the program. Um, it takes a lot. These dogs need to be, you know, they need to really want to do this. They need to have the right skills. They need to have the right health and they need to really enjoy working because we don't work a dog that doesn't want to work. Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of research about dogs before we got one. And, um, there's, there's so many specific breeds that love having jobs and they, they, they mm -hmm. function best when they're just like humans, you know, you need that dopamine release. You need to feel like you're doing something productive and it's, it's awesome how dogs be the same way too. It's, um, well, and Bernie's mountain dogs in particular, like they're mountain dogs. They're, they're dogs from, you know, the, the Swiss Alps. Yeah. They, um, they, they always had jobs. Yeah. Um, so that's why, you know, Gallup's half Bernie's mountain dog. And my first one was three quarters. They have that working, the working genetics in them. Yeah. That's awesome. So what are, um, pre, uh, quarantine, what were Gallup's like everyday responsibilities? He does everything from finding a chair for me to sit in at a restaurant, um, finding a counter for me to go order my coffee at Starbucks uh, or pay for my groceries, um, finding stairs, finding escalators, um, finding curbs for me to cross. He guides me around any obstacles or objects that are in my way. Um, and they do really interesting things uh, like they're trained. It's called obedient disobedience. And so this is when they're not doing what you tell them to do because they know better. So for example, if I tell him cross the street, but he sees a car coming, he's not going to let me cross the street. 
So I'm telling him to do something and he's disobeying me, but it's obedient disobedience. He's doing it on purpose to keep me safe. So they're trained to do things like that, um, pull you away from moving vehicles. If you just Google like guide dog saving blind person's life, you'll see like a couple different stories um, that, that have happened over the years of, of say a guy falling into the train, a blind guy tra falling into the train tracks and the guide dog rescuing him, things like that. They're absolutely incredible. Wow, has, wow. There, has there ever been a time where your guide dog has potentially saved your life or I mean, I, I have had my guide dog, my first guide dog, Gypsy, um, pull me out of the way of a, of a moving van, large van. Yeah, she like pulled me right back. Wow. Um, and they're, they're, I mean, they very literally are my eyes, right? Like all my life is very literally in this dog's four paws. Mm -hmm. And that's why of all the service dog programs, guiding has to be the highest level. They have to pass the most tests because for a lot of other service dogs, the human tells them what to do and they simply have to do it. But for guide dogs, they actually end up having to make most of the decisions. I'll tell you to go left, but when you go left, you need to find all the problems and, and find the best way to get through them. So for example, if I'm in a department store, and department stores love to put like big bins of stuff in the middle of their aisles and make it really hard to navigate. And so if I tell him, you know, go forward, but he looks at the space and says, okay, my mom and I aren't gonna fit through this space, but she's telling me I need to get her to the end of this aisle. How am I going to go a different route and still get her to where she wants to go? So they actually need to make a lot of decisions. They need to think a lot of things through. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting what, they're, what they train them to do and what they're really capable of. Wow. Well, this is, this is the most random question that, you, that I can ask in the subject, but are there any other guide <laughs> animals that have been used? Like, is it, is it mm -hmm. normally a dog? No, there or, is actually miniature guide horses. Wow. So you can get a miniature horse uh, to be your guide animal. How much are those? <laughs> I have no idea. It's funny because pre-pandemic I was planning, uh, I wanted to contact the school training facility and fly out there and do a video all about miniature guide ponies because I think it would be a really great uh, education opportunity and just a really interesting thing for me and, and for other people to learn about and see. So hopefully post-pandemic I can connect with the training facility and that head out so there to do a video because I think it would be amazing. Yeah, I'd love to learn more myself. I grew up dreaming. I, I, I rode horses growing up. So I grew up dreaming of having a miniature guide pony and then I got Gallop like a horse running uh, there you go. <laughs> and uh, they come with the name. And so he came with his name Gallup and he's 95 pounds and he was 85 pounds when I got him. And I'm really petite. As you guys know, I'm really short. Mm -hmm. um, and I, at the time that I got him also weighed 85 pounds. So my dog and I weighed the same amount. <laughs> and so when I got him and I told him, told my parents like his name is Gallup and he's huge. He weighs the same as me. They were like, you got your guide horse. You got your miniature guide horse. <laughs> Careful what be. you wish for. Oh. So um, you talked about Gallup kind of being forced into retirement. Um, and you guys are giving him an early retirement because you feel it's the right thing to do. Uh, if you were to, like, now because he's all thrown off from the schedule that we've had to adapt to over the past year. If he were to just go back out in public with you, what are some of the you know, concerns that uh, you would have for both of you guys? Yeah, so I bring him out. At this point, I'm kind of transitioning him to the retirement. So I'd say I bring him out 50% of the time, and then I bring my cane 50% of the time, whereas before it was like I never brought my cane, always yeah. gallop. 
Um, but some of the things that I noticed when I was trying to like fully work him still was just more easily distracted. He used to have like laser focus. Whereas now he's kind of like, oh, I want to go sniff that. Like it's almost like he's forgetting he's working. So it'll kind of just like start to go sniff something or pull me to go see something. Um, or if there's food on the ground, he's trying to eat it. Those are things that he never ever did. In fact, he's stealing food. If I like leave a sandwich down on the table, he'll like snap it up. He <sighs> never would have done that before pandemic, never. And so, yeah, it's just basically like misbehaving. Very yeah. normal dog things. Like, yeah, definitely. Not like bad behavior, but he um, just not good guiding behavior. Cause of course he's in environments like restaurants where there will be food dropped on the floor. And it's it's unsafe for me to have him dragging me to go eat it when he shouldn't be doing that. Um, so overall, like his actual guiding is quite good. Like he's still guiding me. He's not, he's not walking me into obstacles. He's not completely not doing his job. He's doing his job enough that I still feel safe bringing him out sometimes. But if I try to bring him out all the time, he just doesn't have the energy, the focus. Um, and he's just doing, he's too distracted doing things he shouldn't be. Um, and, you know, when the pandemic hit and, and his life completely changed, he was frankly very depressed. He was stressed out. He was depressed. He was confused because you can't tell a dog, hey, by the way, like people are dying from this lung infection that's going around. So we all have to stay in and put a mask on. He doesn't get that. And so for him, he was just like, does mommy not want me to work anymore? Am I not good enough anymore? Like, why isn't mommy taking me out anymore? So he was really upset. And he eventually, after about three months, just seemed to accept the reality. And I think he accepted it by just telling himself, I guess I just don't work anymore. And so now when he does go out with the harness, it just doesn't really mean as much as it used to. Um, and the average retirement window for guide dogs is six to eight years of service. And he's been working for six and a half years. So he's in that window. And that's why the school was like, you know, if he had been working for three years, we would try to just retrain him. But he's been working, he's in the window of retirement. So like, why would we put the effort into retraining him for maybe another year of work when we can just retire him and get you a new dog? And so that's why the decision was made. But unfortunately, I've seen so many people in the blind community having to retire their service dogs. Some of just a few years service, um, some also similar to me where they were in the window of retirement anyways, so it just made the most sense. But yeah, it's definitely been a, a big problem and guide dog schools are gonna be overloaded with needing to A, get dogs out to people they weren't expecting to need dogs this soon, um, and B, having to retrain a lot of dogs that lost some skill set. Are there any um, guide dog uh, facilities that you know off the top of your head that accept donations because you said it's charity based that we can just shout out real quick because that is that is a great point that you just made. Yeah, like I said, they're all charities. Um, so the one that uh, I go to is the Mira Foundation and I do have a GoFundMe up right now. Um, I have a guide dog, uh, Instagram account where you can kind of follow the journey of my guide dogs, which is at Molly's guide dogs. Um, and so there's a link to the GoFundMe there to donate to the Mira foundation. You can also do donate to directly to Mira USA, um, which actually specifically just does guide dogs for blind children. 
uh, which Mira is the only guide dog school in the world who trains guide dogs for kids. Most guide dog schools, you have to wait till you're 16 years old, and it used to actually be 18. But the Mira Foundation gives them to blind kids ages 11 and up, which is incredible. And believe me, as somebody who was able to get my dog at 13 because of Mira, um, having a guide dog at school was life-changing for me. Um, socially, it was a huge help, which is something a lot of blind kids struggle with. Um, so I think they're a really great organization, but if you're looking like, you know, you want to donate to one in your state, um, you can just look up the name of your state and guide dogs. Uh, there's like two different schools in California, maybe even three, but definitely two schools in California. Um, there's an amazing school. My kind of top three choices would be the Mira Foundation, the Seeing Eye, and Guiding Eyes for the Blind. I think those are, those are three schools that I really respect and I think come out with very high quality guide dogs. Amazing. We'll definitely be sending a donation. I heard you speak about the the difference between being blind and going to school with and without a guide dog and how when you had your guide dog, kids were so much more accepting and it was kind of like an icebreaker to start a conversation for them to get to know you is because you had this dog that you know everyone loves and wants to come up and, and see. Can you explain that a little bit more and the importance of a kid having a guide dog? Yeah, it, you know... A cane is scary, right? Like you see the cane and for a lot of able-bodied people, um, they see that and they're like, oh, disability. Mm -hmm. Like that's what connects in their mind first. And that becomes like, oh, scary. I don't want to startle the blind person. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I'll just not interact. Yeah. But with a dog, people see me with the dog and they go, the first thing they think of is not, oh, disability. It's, oh, dog which is very human. It's a really human thing. It's a very connective thing. A lot of people love dogs. And so instead of being like, oh, Kane, I'm scared. I don't want to say the wrong thing. They go, oh, dog, I want to go talk to that person. And so for some blind people, uh, like I have some blind friends who that's the actual very reason they don't want a guide dog. It's like, yeah. I don't want strangers constantly coming up to me and talking to me. And I get it. Like sometimes it really is annoying, but I'm, a, I'm an extrovert. And so for yeah. me, it really helps socially because I can be in a room of a hundred people, but I can't see any of you. And so it can still feel isolating even when I'm surrounded by people because I can't just scan the room, make eye contact with somebody, smile, nod, walk over and start a conversation. I can't see that some guy at the lunchroom in school is wearing a band tee and I love that band and I can start a conversation with him. And so it makes it very hard to interact with people. Um, so having the guide dog, it made people come up to me mm -hmm. instead of me having to try to put myself out there and hope I'm talking to somebody I'm actually interested in talking to or talking to somebody that actually wants to be talking to me. Uh, so yeah, I found having a guide dog really helped me socially. And I think school is very formative time to develop social skills interacting with other students. So I, you know, I think it's amazing that Mira empowers kids to be able to have that experience. Did you find that when, once you had Gallup walking, you know, with you around the halls it was, and it was Gypsy at the time. Oh, Gypsy, sorry. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, when you had Gypsy walking with you around the halls and you were able to start more conversations, um, did you, did you find any like, I guess, breakthrough moments with people in certain parts, aspects of conversation that you could, you could engage in together that kind of stopped them um, from discriminating and maybe realize where they'd gone wrong about you 
before. Yeah, you know, it was it was a really comfortable way to have a conversation about my disability with people. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody walks up to you and goes, "Oh, how old is your cane? What's its name? Can I pet it?" But lots of people come up to you and ask that about your dog. And so when people come up and say, "Oh, I, your dog is so cute. What's its name?" and I say, "Oh, Gypsy or Gallop," they say, "Oh, can I pet it?" I can say, "Oh, no, he's actually my my service dog because I'm blind." And they go, "Oh, really? I, I wouldn't have known." And they go, "Yeah, I actually have this condition." So it's like this really easy way to have a conversation about a topic that can feel uncomfortable for people. Um, so I think that has just allowed me to talk about my disability really openly and freely with complete strangers in a way that doesn't make them feel nervous or scared. That's really great. So when you eventually really began engaging in these conversations with your classmates, um, did you like become friends with someone who had you know, been treating you unfairly before then? Um, or, or, or do you remember any early on conversations about when you were, you know, adapting to losing your sight and um, people and, and interacting with people? Do you, do you remember any early on conversations where um, you kind of ended people's like stigma, I guess, uh, that they had against you for being blind? You know, just like I have faced on the internet, a lot of people at the time that I was going blind, like kind of just assumed I was faking it. Mm-hmm. And you can't get a guide dog from a school like the Mira Foundation without proving you're blind, right? Like they don't go around giving $40,000 dogs out to just anybody. Um, you have to have medical notes, doctor's reports, eye reports, um, pull, fill out forms. Like it's a full application process. And then you have to actually go and demonstrate your orientation and mobility skills with your white cane so they can assess you and that a dog would be right for you. And so you don't just get a guide dog, you know? Um, So I feel like just the fact that I got a guide dog from an accredited school like the Mira Foundation in a way like helped prove the validity of my vision loss for people like in in my community. Wow, so it was like a validity type thing, and that's why they would discriminate. Like, oh, she's not actually blind, just like they do yeah, online. Yeah, because because it's like, you know, oh well, in grade seven, Molly could see that, so why can't she see that now? You know, like it was just people. People really struggle. Like people really think of blindness as black or white. Like you either see or you don't see. You either see everything or you're in the dark. People really struggle with the, the idea that blindness, like all disability, is a spectrum. Um, in fact, people who can see absolutely nothing are the minority in the blind community. Most blind people have some kind of remaining vision, and there's a lot of people living with degenerative vision loss, like myself, where it slowly gets worse over time. So it was really hard for for young people especially to wrap their heads around that. But you'd be shocked. Like I even had my school guidance counselor say that I was faking it and like told my other teachers I was faking it, told my parents she thought I was faking it. And she actually had to like get on a call with my psychologist who like had my eye reports and was like, so she's not faking it. And it's really damaging to her mental health that you keep telling people she's faking it. That's ridiculous. ridiculous. And what is like, I I struggle to find out what's in it for the person who is accusing someone of faking it. What, What would like, what would it do for them if, you know, someone was, if they, they turn out to be fake, like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I just, yeah. I really, I struggle I to understand. And like you said, like no, no one, no one is out there faking, faking it. A, a very, a very well, small faking minority. blind, like in particular, faking blind is, is very difficult. Yeah. I would you say know, it's there's, like, there's things to fake other disabilities or illnesses that would be easier. So for example, like 
a wheelchair user, right? Like you can get a wheelchair and, and sit in the chair and, and more easily kind of pretend. Or you can, you see a lot of people when, not a lot of people, again, not a lot of people fake cancer, but the people you've seen that have famously faked cancer, they shave their eyebrows, they shave their head, they pluck their eyelashes to give that visual appearance. Blindness is something that's incredibly difficult to fake because you don't just get to like wave a stick around. There are certain things that your brain as a sighted person just does. When you see it, you just react to it. When you see a ball flying to your head, you get out of the way. When I have a ball flying to my head, I get hit in the head. You can't actually make yourself do that. You, you'd have to be very powerful. Like you can't control your brain that much. And we like to think we can control our brain, but really our brain is what controls us. And so as a blind person, to, to be able to fake not doing things, like hurting yourself, falling, tripping, walking into things, not waving as a response, not smiling as a response to somebody smiling at you, not making eye contact. These are things that the average person just does as instinct because their body's reacting. So of all disability or illness to fake, blindness would actually be particularly difficult. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, and then I remember we had a conversation because you are very good with eye contact. When, when I met you in person, um, you, you did make eye contact and um, that you, you let me know that that's one of the things why people, that, that people like to call out to say that you're faking being blind because of. So yeah, I, it, it, to be honest, like it weirds me out too because I don't necessarily know that I'm doing it all the time. Yeah. Like sometimes I'm looking at something or quote making eye contact, but I don't, I don't realize I'm doing it. So it's like weird for me because it seems like a two-sided experience, but it's actually very one-sided. Mm -hmm. You're the only one kind of really engaged in that experience. And I remember talking to my vision itinerant. So when you're blind, you get a special teacher uh, called a vision itinerant. They're the ones that teach you how to read and write in braille and all these different things. And I remember talking to her about it when I was about 16 or 17. And she said, you know, what people need to realize, you know, what people need to really look for and understand is um, there's looking at something and there's looking through something, right? And like when you're looking at something, it's a very focused thing. But when you're looking kind of through something, it's a little softer. And so even though I'm like maybe looking at you or even close to your eyes, I'm, I'm really kind of more looking through you uh, than really actually connecting. Um, and so for me, I really just base it off of a combination of somebody's height and the sound of their voice. Because I could see for a long time, looking in the, the direction of somebody is natural to me. I actually still look at my phone when I text. When somebody walks in a door, I turn to see who walked in. I can't see any of this stuff. It's just like I saw for so long, it's instinct. It's just my reaction. Like I said, there's things you just don't choose. You don't control, your brain just does it. And so for me, I, I always look at somebody, but. I base where I think their eyes probably are based on the sound of their voice and then the sound of how tall they are. And it's a pretty even space between there as to where the eyes are going to be. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you just said that some of these things um, are just habits that you form from when you were able to see. Um, and it's something that really has stuck with me about from the conversation that we had on our way back from skydiving um, was that you got to a point where you felt like you had some sort of breakthrough on your, your journey of losing your sight and, and adapting um, and relearning, you had this breakthrough moment um, and you described it almost as the moment where you kind of 
didn't wish that you could see anymore? You, you tried to not think, oh, I, I just wish I could still see. Yeah, I think um, I grew up for a long time in the cure community, the medical model of disability, where it was a lot of my life and energy and time was focused on the idea of being cured. I was literally the poster child for a charity that raised money to cure blindness. And so when you're raised with that, the moment you go blind, you're like, oh God, like I'm not going to be able to be successful or like nobody's going to love me. I'm not going to be happy ever again because I'm this thing that everyone's told me I need to cure, that everyone's told me I need to change about myself. And so when, when you face the reality and there's no cure, it's really scary and very damaging. And somewhere along the journey of recovery, I got to the point of realizing I can't change this. That doesn't exist. There's no option. I can't change this. So I can cry and I can like sit at home and not live life and hopefully like wait till one day that there's a cure or I can just accept that this is my reality and like get up and move on and like just stop caring. And so that's what I chose to do. And I think, you know, everybody has something to accept about themselves and it's, it's not an easy journey. You know, it's not easy to accept these things, but you can either just be stuck in your pain or you can grieve, you can mourn, you can experience that pain and loss. And then you can get up and say, I deserve to keep living. I deserve better than being in pain all the time. I deserve better than hating my life or myself for X, Y, Z reason. I deserve to still enjoy life and be confident and be capable and do what I can do. Make the best of the situation that I do have. And it's not the ideal and it's not what I would have wanted, but I'm going to make the most of it. Um, and that's what I chose to do. Uh, and that's how I live my life every day. That's amazing. And it's extremely admirable. And um, it's, it's very, it's almost intimidating to, to, to able-bodied people because you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're in the situation that um, I'm sure you were fearful about growing up, um, especially when, you know, talking about the cure to what was ahead of you. Um, and that's just like the, the biggest hurdle that that uh, someone like myself who's an able-bodied person can ever imagine having to to cross. Uh, I, I, I honestly, I, I mean, I couldn't, you know, um, but it's, it's, that's extremely admirable. That's why it stuck with me for so long. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, I hope that it by sharing it, you know, it inspires other people or, or pushes other people to finally seek that acceptance for themselves for whatever it is in their life whether it's your weight or your sexuality or whatever it might be like if you just have this thing that you have you know um i one of my gay friends dealt with internalized homophobia for a really long time before he was just able to accept who he was and so you know if you're somebody who's living with with that anger or that shame or that guilt for for being overweight or for being gay or for whatever it is in your life, like I hope that hearing that um, can push you to start the journey of your own self-acceptance and self-love because you deserve it, honestly. Like you just deserve to feel better and you can feel better. Um, and it's really empowering when you just let go of wishing to be different, of wishing to change, when you realize like maybe it's not going to happen and I can just, I can make the most of what I do got. 
That's really important. Empowering is definitely the word. Um, so you are a, a motivational speaker, I guess is a term that I could use for it, right? Uh, yes. Where you travel around and you speak to, to many different people about things that you face and you've overcome. And what needs I mean, to change. Yeah. Was, is there anything that you remember? Like when, I'm sure you, you hear feedback when you go to these, to these places to speak, right? Is there like a, yeah. a Q&A and stuff like that after? Is there anything mm-hmm. that, that someone's told you about their personal struggle that has helped you get through your own or something that's stuck with you a- after speaking at one of these? The biggest thing that stuck with me, you know, I, I kept getting feedback from people after they'd come up to me again and again and say, you know, I struggle with depression and now I feel like I have no reason to be depressed because I haven't gone through anything nearly as hard as you have. Like, I shouldn't be upset about my divorce because, you know, at least I'm still cited. And it stuck with me because it it just didn't sit right. Um, And it really made me think, um, and now I, I find it very important to share with people that all pain is valid and that whatever causes you pain is, is valid. Like if, if your divorce is the worst pain you've ever been through, if failing your math test is the worst pain you've ever been through, if not getting into your dream college is the worst pain you've ever been through, that pain is valid. If COVID, if this pandemic is the worst pain you've ever felt, your pain is valid. Your pain is valid just because it isn't quote as bad as somebody else's pain doesn't mean it's not valid. And that's why I I hate phrases like, well, at least, you know, I I don't know. This was very common when I was growing up. People would say things, well, at least you're not a starving child in Africa. And it's like their pain is valid, but so is mine. And pain should not ever be compared. And it's okay to just say to somebody. And again, when I was going blind, I would have people say things like, well, you're going blind, but you're not dying of cancer. And it was like, yes, I'm, I'm grateful for that, but I'm in, also I'm in pain right now. And my, my pain is real. Please don't invalidate that. And so it's okay to just say to somebody like, I see that you're hurting and it's okay that you're hurting. Your pain is valid. It's okay that you're in pain. You're not gonna always be in pain. This really hurts right now and that's okay but you're gonna get through it. That's what you need to say. You don't need to invalidate anybody's pain or tell them, well, I had a rough breakup and I got over it. Guess what? You're also not them. (laughs) So we all deal with things differently and pain is valid and that's okay. And so I think that was like something that just really, really stuck with me after hearing it enough times. I was like, this isn't actually what I'm trying to get, have people get out of this. I don't want people to walk away from my presentation being like, my pain isn't good enough. Like, I don't deserve to be in pain. It's like, no, you, you, you shouldn't be in pain. You don't deserve to be in pain, but you, you are in pain and that's okay that you're in pain. You don't have to feel guilt that you're in pain. Uh, you just have to focus your energy on, on accepting it and, and learning how to overcome it and working towards healing. Yeah, I can imagine how damaging that is because um, the, the, the only way to really overcome something in, in your life that's been weighing heavy on your conscience is to face it head on and, and then recover from there. Um, and if someone's invalidating that pain and you're just kicking the can further down the road um, and you're told that you're not supposed to be confronting that, it's always going to be weighing heavy on you. Um, and that's, that's a weight that no one deserves to feel. 
And so is that, exactly. is that something that you address now in your presentation? Yeah, it's something that I always try to remind my audience of. Um, because I, I also, the other reason I, I don't like it is because, you know, and I get these comments on YouTube and stuff too, like, oh, like, you know, I've, I've had a tough life. My, my parents were addicts and I was taken away and put into foster care and, you know, things were really challenging, but at least I have my sight. I'm like, that's not actually what I want you to feel. Like, I don't want you to look at me and be like, Whew, well, at least I'm not Molly. Like, no, I, I actually feel very blessed. I've lived a lot of trauma. I've lived a lot of challenge, but I've also lived a lot of, you know, gratitude. I've been very blessed. Um, and I, I don't like people. I don't like the fact that society often looks at disability and goes, well, that's as bad as it gets. <laughs> wow, I'm glad, you know. My life's been real hard, but at least I'm not disabled. Like, no, disabled people can live great lives. We shouldn't be thinking of disability as like the bottom of the barrel life experience. Um, so yeah, for that's another reason I, I don't like that idea that people go, oh, well, you've been through more or like, oh, well, at least I'm not you. It's like, no, I, I'm happy to be me. I'm living my best life. Yeah, and that's great. And just just teaching people that their their pain is valid is so, I mean, they probably go to your presentation thing, they're going to take something on, and then leaving with that message is, that's amazing. And I think it's great that you, you've kind of corrected that through hearing it so many times. And even Yeah, for me, I try to bring a lot of messages to my presentations, and I, I, I hope that whatever message is meant to resonate is what each individual walks away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even for me, I think trying to find ways to... Maybe it's even subconsciously, but I feel like I've naturally tried to find ways to subconsciously, like, invalidate my my pain and stuff like that in, in different ways. Not by looking at other people and what they're going through and comparing myself, but there's there's other ways that I've definitely invalidated my my pain and and the things that I've been going through. So just to hear that from you, uh, I can apply it in other areas. And it's really yeah, nice. it's important. So, I mean, like you said, you like the remember. only way you heal is by is by addressing it. Like you, we all know, like you, if you bottle up emotions, eventually the bottle's gonna burst, and so it's best to just like accept the state you're in and be like, okay, like I'm depressed. This is where I'm at. I'm gonna let myself feel this thing, but I'm not gonna let myself live like this. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be proactive and like heal, actively work towards recovering. That's great. Um, and just for the future. Um so I, I heard you're getting a new guide dog in August or September. Yeah. Do yeah, you have the dog so picked excited. out or how does how is that process? So I will head out to the guide dog school training facility and um, I will live there for two to three weeks and they will oh, so you train have to live me there. with my new dog. So they don't pre-pick the dog. Most guide dog schools do. Mine doesn't. So I'll go, I'll get to work with different dogs, meet them. And then with the trainer, I'll decide like which dog feels like the right fit. And um, yeah, go, go through the, the journey of training together for two to three weeks, maybe a month, depends how it goes. And um, you know, it's this really delicate balancing act where you're trying to gain the dog's trust and you're trying to trust the dog. You're trying to build that bond of trust and love, but you're also trying to gain the dog's respect and help them understand that you are the one that 
they're supposed to listen to now, not the trainer. So it's this deep, interesting web of, of balancing act. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna document the whole experience for my YouTube channel and I'm really excited to be able to do that because I started my YouTube channel the month after I got Gallup. So I never really got to share any of that. So this is gonna be, I've talked a lot about how it works, but this will be the first time I actually get to bring my audience on the experience of training with a guide dog. So I, I'm pretty excited for the, for the new dog and, and for the content to be able to share that with people. That's, that's awesome. I definitely wanna tune in for that. And I hope that next time we're able to see each other um, our dogs can meet. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I would love that puppy playdate. Burner playdate. Burner yeah. playdate. Do you think it'll be a, a, a Bernese, a part Bernese? Is it typically? Yeah, I think so. Um, my, both of my last two have been, my first one was 75% Bernese, Gallup's 50%. I am hopeful that I get either a purebred Bernese or a dog that looks like a burner because I love the eyebrows. The <laughs> eyebrows are so cute. It's so funny to have eyebrows. <laughs> I know. It's so cute. They're like one of the only dogs that have eyebrows. Think about it. Yeah. Eyebrow dogs. Ethan has a, Ethan has a big bushy beard now. I do too, so I'm, I'm not talking shit, but... <laughs> He really looks like a Bernese. Uh, yeah, I kind of look like... people say that you look like your dogs, Ethan looks like our dog. Oh my God, no way. My dad looked like our family pet. Like, they looked <laughs> identical. It was so funny. I love people that look like their dogs. Yeah, that's <laughs> Ethan. He's kind of like hijacked our dog from us a little bit because uh, his girlfriend lives here with us and our dog stays in their room. So they become like her parents kind of and I'm like the fun uncle, the funkle. Aww. <laughs> so I'm actually getting a new dog. I've decided. No way. I'm, I'm gonna You're get, getting another dog? Yeah, we're going to get another one. I'm addicted to dogs. So I'm going to well, get... We just wanted to have well, I just got a cat 10 months ago. I adopted a cat almost oh. a year ago now, actually. So now I've got my cat and my dog, and I want a bunny next. A bunny's on the list. You should do it. And then a mini horse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then the mini horse. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I could just imagine how cute that would We're going to have a farm very around. soon. I know it for a fact. Yeah. That's what I want. Basically, my dream is just have like a farm... <laughs> All the animals. We want a farm too. So we can visit each other's farms with, with our dogs. We can be farm neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> are, do you think you have the farm in Canada or, or are you going to try to find a farm in Los Angeles? <laughs> I'll, I'll try to have one of those, those common LA farms, you know? <laughs> so many of them kicking around LA. <laughs> um, this conversation's been awesome. I'm so happy that we got to catch up. And, um, yeah, hear, hear me some more. too. This was really fun. And hopefully... Everything will calm down. We're all vaccinated and we'll be able to like hang out in person and have doggy play dates soon. Definitely. Yeah. I yeah. think it's on the horizon. It, it was very inspiring once again to hear you speak and uh, I really appreciate it. Um, Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Really. Uh, if we could just sign off with um, one, w one more way that everybody can, can help or, or t it's something that we can take away from this to apply to our everyday lives about how we can help. Um, whether it's on the awareness front, accessibility, uh, what can we do to help um, the disabled community? The biggest thing you can do is educate yourself. Make an effort to follow disabled content creators of all different disabilities. Read blogs about disability, read books. Uh, documentaries, uh, Crip Camp on Netflix is a great one. Um, just be active in, in learning. 
you know, because educating yourself is the first step to really building empathy and understanding uh, and, and joining our community in, in, our, in our movement towards gaining, you know, equal rights and um, helping change the world. Thanks a lot, Molly. Thank really you. Appreciate Thank you for coming it. on and educating us and our listeners. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>